Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm so close, I could take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm, the, I'm, the I'm Patrick Bedoui, host of Valley and today I'm sitting down with Michael Porter and Catherine Gale. Michael Porter is a legendary professor at Harvard Business and Catherine Gale sold her family-owned business that was doing a quarter billion dollars of revenues per year and today we're going to talk about the industry, the industry of politics. Michael Porter, Catherine Gale, thank you so much for being a guest on Valley Tainment. Patrick, thank you. So I have a question. You know, uh, Michael, let's start off with you. So you, when I read the preface in the book, to me, you've always been a business guy. You've always been a competition guy. You were a, uh, 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 you played on, I think you played on the championship team of uh, Princeton Golf, and you were somebody that played a lot of different sports, and you've always stuck to your strategy side, that side. And I didn't hear a lot about politics, but it was very interesting for you to want to partner, I'm going to want to write this. What inspired you to want to take, the, take a look at competition in the world of politics? Well, what I, what I discovered uh, was, and with the help of Catherine, was that actually all the things I cared about, making America more competitive, uh, getting the right policies in place, uh, stimulating the uh, advancement of our business, uh, business sector, all those things were being shackled by the failure of our politics system. We just couldn't get anything done that was going to drive our country to the next level. So really, it was that simple. And, and how many similarities uh, f- from the moment you guys started working on it, competition-wise? Because to me, uh, uh, I see differences, but I'm curious to know for somebody that like you, you're the expert, you're the godfather of competition and the topic of competition, what differences do you see in the world of business when it comes to competition versus the world of politics when it comes to competition? It's, it's kind of a stunning difference. And uh, in, in business competition, uh, companies are usually competing, you know, fairly and uh, uh, to try to succeed and to try to advance. And uh, in politics, the competition is totally about the competitor's own interests, the, pol- the parties. The parties are competing to benefit themselves and to advance their cause, really not to advance the public interest, not to make the country better, not to make our business environment better. So it's, it's like a, a, a stunning disconnect. Yeah, and, and we'll, go, we'll go deeper into that. But Catherine, I want to go to you because the idea of this book came from you and you approached Michael Porter to want to work on this together. Uh, here you are going to Kellogg, you know, you get your, I think you got your MBA from Kellogg, if I'm not mistaken. So you're you're succeeding in business. You come from a great lineage of business folks. You're doing good for yourself. You're in Wisconsin. You're doing what you're doing. What, what led you and drew into politics? I mean, how did that happen for you? You know, it's actually interesting. It seems like it's a disconnect, but it really is fundamentally my experience as a business person and as a CEO that makes any of this possible. So uh, like you mentioned before, I was running this food manufacturing company And that experience gave me all the learnings that I needed to do what I'm doing today. I mean, as you know, and so many of your uh, viewers will know, business really teaches innovation, results, accountability, and how to deliver those. And those are all the things that we actually don't have in politics. And the lack of that is apparent to everybody. I mean, and people really, they may not say, oh, we don't have innovation and results and accountability, but they say all the time, Washington is broken. And, and that's what I thought 
at the same time. I just couldn't figure out why it was broken. Like, why was it so irrational? How can the country that created modern democracy and free market enterprise, you know, do such a poor job, essentially, of both of those that they're becoming almost existentially at risk? And uh, Michael could talk about more details about our declining fortunes, but I'll just fast forward to the light bulb moment for me around this politics work. I was deeply concerned as a citizen, as a business leader, because I saw the policies that weren't getting implemented, but I didn't fully understand. And in 2013, when I was still running my company, I read this amazing book by Mickey Edwards, a former Republican congressman, and it's called The Parties Versus the People. And in there, he, he says, Washington isn't broken. It's doing what it's designed to do. So really, as we figured out then, we don't have a politician problem. We don't have a policy problem. We have a political system problem. The rules and the incentives in politics are all screwed up. And we'll talk more about that later. Um, so as I'm realizing this, Coincidentally, I'm starting a company strategy project with, fortunately for us, the father of modern corporate strategy, Michael Porter. And we're, I'm trying to figure out my food industry business using the five forces. But while I was doing that, in the back of my head, I kept having this parallel analysis going on. Oh, my goodness. This is exactly how the politics industry works as well. So I was really running two analyses using the five forces at the same time. And I found it to be illuminating and a real clear way to say what's wrong, but much more importantly, a clear way to help diagnose how we could fix it. Because one thing to know why it's wrong, it's another thing to figure out where would we have the leverage to change it? Um, and so that was the turning point. I was all into systems, 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 incentives, rules of the game. And I couldn't unsee this. So every time I saw what was going on in Washington, D.C., it immediately went back to the analysis. And I said, oh, we could predict that. This behavior, which seems irrational to those of us in business and is totally counterproductive, certainly for the country, is totally rational given the system they're in. So after I sold my company in 2015, I was working on changing this, uh, changing the incentives, but I felt that business people were missing in action. They were MIA from the conversation and from the leadership to make a difference. Essentially, they, I believe, felt that politics was too irrational and they couldn't do anything about it. So I decided that we needed to make the business case for investment of their own leadership, of their own time and resources in this most critical problem. And so we needed to write the theory. We needed to write what's now become uh, called politics industry theory because by demystifying it using this business lens of competition thinking, then we generate an understanding that leads to engagement. So in 2016, I asked Michael to join me to, to write about this because we're using the five forces. It was so fabulous. And 
we started writing, and then in 2017, we published at Harvard Business School, where Michael is, a report, as, which you mentioned. We got a great reception. It's really brought this idea of healthy competition versus unhealthy competition to the fore, and people are talking about it. We always need more people talking about it, and that's why now we've turned it into a book, why we're talking to you today, and going forward, it's really all about driving the action. So we believe that we have the right prescription. How can we now take that to scale across the country? And for me, I sold my company. That gives me the freedom to do this work. And I'm all in. It's my passion project. And I can't think of something that I'd rather be doing because it Politics is the preeminent barrier to solving the issues that are facing us as a country. Very interesting. And you know, uh, when you run business originally, you go in thinking it's just about, I want to grow a company. I want to make an impact. I want to do this. And then the bigger you get, you realize how much of a role politics plays within a company. And you never thought like you have to deal with politics. Why? Po I thought it's just competition. And then you notice there's politics there. So, so I, I see the similarity there, but now, you know, uh, the one thing I do want to talk about before I get into my question with you is you talk about the five stages of political grief you went through. Would you mind sharing that with the audience? Oh, sure. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So uh, some of the audience may know there's a, you know, five stages of grief, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, when you uh, grieve the loss of someone or something important in your life. And so for me, as I cared about politics as a citizen and a business leader, because again, as you're noting, the political environment, the U.S. competitiveness matters to business. So I'm deeply caring. I've got my child. I care about her future. And now I think politics is screwed up. So I said, I must get involved. And I did what people often do, which is I chose a candidate. So I uh, had known State Senator Barack Obama for some number of years in Chicago, and I got deeply involved in his 2008 campaign. I was all in for hope and change. And then after his administration uh, was in office for a while, I was paying close attention and I served in a role in that administration. And I was disappointed by what we were able to produce out of Washington, D.C. And I said, wow, if we can send this extraordinary candidate to the office and yet Washington, D.C. is functioning similarly to how it functioned before, gosh, maybe candidates are not the answer. So that's the first stage, not candidates. I said, I know, I'll get involved in policy. So then I get deeply involved in policy and I find out, oh, what do you know? Behind closed doors, there's reasonable agreement across both sides about what are the policies to solve our most pressing issues. There's just no political will. So I go, okay, not policy. I know I'll get involved in culture. So I joined up with a movement, you know, at, at high levels of a movement that was trying to bring everybody together and, and, and we got a lot of pledges of bipartisanship um, in the House and the Senate. And yet when it came time to vote, everybody voted the same way. So they say they want bipartisanship, but they don't vote that way. So I say, oh, culture's not enough. And then I said, I know, I'll work on candidates again. But now I will try to elect candidates that are independent so they're not beholden to either side of the duopoly. And guess what? 
They can't get elected. So that was the fourth stage. And finally, as I noted before, I read Mickey Edwards' book in 2013. The light bulb went off. It's a systems problem. I have never looked back. Um, and my grief is all about the system now, but that grief also informs my hope, which is it's not a mystery. The reasons for our dysfunction are clear. They're in the rules and the incentives of the system, and so we have the power to change them. So now I'm done with grief, and I'm full into hope and change yet again. Full circle. So, so first stage choosing a candidate, then you realize, okay, that's not the way to go. Number two was policies. Number three was culture. Number one, number four was a, a independent candidate. And then number five, fifth stage was changing the system. Systems, incentives, rules. Systems, incentives, rules. I like that system. So which, which stage do you think is going to be media? Is there going to be a stage number six, which is media or no? Oh, no, there isn't going to be because what's so interesting about any sort of human endeavor is that systems and culture and communication, there are all kinds of things that drive behavior. But what's really important, and we learn this in business, is not to spend our time bemoaning the things over which we have no control but rather to focus intently and solely on the things where we have leverage. So as citizens, we have leverage. It's not easy to get this leverage, but we have it on the system. There is no leverage available to you know, wave a magic wand and change the way media works in our country or the world. So I listen to sage advice from Michael Porter, who is famously known for saying, strategy is about choosing what not to do. And Michael and I keep our work solely in this intersection of what we call powerful and achievable. We want to do things that are powerful enough to make a difference, not just things that feel good. And then we want to do things that we can actually achieve, not just tilt at windmills. I'm, I'm very curious to know as we go into this conversation, the role of media plays, because, uh, you know, uh, there's an element of that where, uh, you know, like what I've noticed for myself with uh, the pandemic is if you went back 50 years ago, I don't know if we would have responded to it the same way we did today and how much more of a role uh, local politics plays. Like in L.A., you got a mayor telling them certain things to do that's scaring the hell out of folks in L.A. and Dallas is handling it in a different way and as well as the role media plays. So it's interesting, your take, but uh, maybe we'll visit that here in a minute. So, uh, Michael, question for you. Uh, uh, again, going back to the question about competition in business, competition in politics, the difference between those two, why should the average person that's watching this, who is kind of sitting there saying, ah, honestly, I really don't know about uh, policies. Uh, I keep hearing about this gerrymandering thing. I don't even know what gerrymandering is. I think I watched a video one time where they take the people and they split it. So, you know, the governor back in the days, I think he was from Massachusetts, that he kind of uh, changed this. And his last name was uh, Jerry. And he changed it to be able to beat this other federalist guy. This whole stuff. I don't really know what's really going on there. And why should I care? Michael, from your point of view, a business point of view, why should the average person watching this care 
to want to change politics because most of the people I talk to, they're just kind of thrown in the towel saying, I don't trust politicians and I really don't want to do nothing about it. What would you say to them? Well, it's, it's funny, uh, you know, the, the journey on my side really reflected that point absolutely directly. You know, we at Harvard Business School, uh, and I work a lot on competitiveness and economic development and why countries prosper and I work with many countries around the world. It's so I care deeply about moving our, our society forward and, and making our collective business environment better. And we noticed about a decade ago that the performance of the American economy was really, really, really bad. Uh, we were seeing results, slow growth, slow productivity. Uh, our, our skills were, were declining relative to other countries. Our education system was declining relative to other countries. And at the school, uh, we sort of came together and say, it's our responsibility at Harvard Business School. We got to understand what's going on here. You know, why are we not making headway? Why is our, our economy getting more competitive? Why are American businesses not thriving the way they should uh, around the world? And uh, so we, we started this big project, collected a lot of data, and, uh, and we, we, we came up with uh, an, an assessment of the U.S. business environment uh, with a two-by-two two matrix, you know, like we always have here at Harvard. And uh, what's but most of it was things that were not good and things that were getting worse. We, out of that analysis, we came up with uh, what we call the eight-point plan. We, we came up with the eight things that America has to do if it's going to ultimately restore the energy and the dynamism of, our, of the American economy. And it was, it was all fairly basic things. It was like, we got to fix the tax code so that we're not bankrupting ourselves with deficits and we've got the right incentives so that companies can invest. We've got to have a decent policy to allow rational immigration uh, of highly skilled individuals into America. That had been a real strength. We had tremendous immigration, but we've had this battle over immigration for so many years and it's a divisive issue and it turns Americans against Americans. We talked about we, our international trading system that we live in had some disadvantages for America. There were some things that were distortions and, and, and kind of getting in the way of a really fair competition. So uh, we had to do something about that. We, we have crummy infrastructure, uh, you know, in America. We, we, everybody knows this. Uh, uh, it's just a catastrophe how bad our infrastructure is on all the metrics. And uh, the, my favorite example is if you land at Kennedy Airport, and this is no disrespect to New York, if you land at Kennedy Airport, and you look around at that airport, and you took off in China or Switzerland or almost anywhere else in the world, you land at Kennedy Airport, it's a joke. It's an embarrassment. It doesn't work. Uh, and and that, that cuts across a lot of our infrastructure, our railroad system and so forth. We had to deal with a sustainable budget. I mean, our budget was just out of control. And uh, nobody sort of thinks that we'll ever have to pay it back, but... Uh, uh, we, we, we can't reform entitlements. We couldn't do anything to kind of get our house in order. And uh, so um, what we did was we took this eight-point plan, and I'll never forget this. This was my really first exposure to politics on large scale. And we trooped down to Washington, and we started meeting with members of Congress. And I went with uh, Jan Rifkin, who's my colleague that was co-chair of this, this uh, project. And By the way, what year was this, if you don't mind me asking? This was about uh, 2012 or okay. 13, okay? Uh, and uh, we went down, and, and it was funny. Every member of Congress and senator that we asked for an appointment 
they gave it to us. I mean, we got in. We got through the door. I think that's because they respect Harvard Business School and think it's a fine institution. So we went in there and we explained the analysis of what, we, uh, what was going wrong in the economy and why we weren't progressing and why income inequality was rising and why economic growth was slow. We went in there and everybody nodded their head, you know, through the whole conversation. And uh, yeah, that, that, that sounds right to me. That, that's what we think that too. As I said, and then I said, uh, then we talked about the eight point plan. Here's what we need to do. And as we were describing what we need to do, everybody was nodding their head. Uh, yeah, we need to deal with our infrastructure. Yeah, we need to uh, uh, improve our tax incentives and our tax code. Yeah, uh, yeah we, we need to improve our training and education system in America. Everybody nodded their head. We have to have an immigration policy. But then what we discovered, uh, and sometimes they actually told us before we left, they said, look, we agree with all these things and we think they're great ideas, but it's going to be really, really hard to get anything done. And, and that created this incredible puzzle that how can we not do rational things that will make our country thrive uh, when the people involved understand that that's what they should do? And, and that's when, for me, the, you know, the, Catherine had already uh, started you know, uh, brainwashing me about you know, politics because she knew something about it. I didn't know anything. I was, I was just doing my work. Um, and it was really that experience that showed how important it is for us to have people understand. We need Americans to understand this. Most Americans have no idea why this happens. They just think it's normal, it's natural, it's the way it's always been. We, we can't agree. We always have fights on stuff. And, 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 and we, just, we just came to the view that and we had a responsibility as Harvard Business School to do something about that. So with, with, very fortunately, I knew Catherine. We started, she asked me to join this work, and uh, we, we developed a way of understanding it. And since then, this has been really one of my passions. Uh, because if we can't deal with this issue, uh, our country is in serious trouble. And, and by the way, I haven't mentioned it's not just economic policy where we're screwing up. Uh, it's also on our, our social agenda. Uh, we have we have discrimination against minorities and violence that's 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 very high and 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 we rank very low versus other countries. We we rank very low on quality education. Um, you know we have we our maternal mortality in America, maternal mortality, United States of America, of all the countries in the world, we're number sixty second. And among the OECD countries, which is 36 countries, we're number 35. How could the United States of America have maternal mortality like that, child mortality like that, homicide rates off the chart, uh, discrimination against minorities, inequality of political power, even on things like freedom of religion? These were, these were bedrock principles when, we, when this country was, was put together. And somehow we've managed to lose a lot of this. We were the leader in social progress. We were the leader in creating opportunity for people. Now we've just about eradicated the American dream because it's, it's very hard for most people to, you know, do better than their parents anymore. And so uh, it, this is, uh, I think people don't understand politics is not just a sideshow. It's really at the core of what's going on in, in, in the United States of America, and it's going to determine, have a, have a huge impact on our future. And as Catherine said, it's, you know, 
we've tried different kinds of presidents from both parties and we've tried, you know, all kinds of different things. It isn't working. And that's because we hadn't really understood how it really actually functions as a system. So, uh, so this, is, this is something that has become uh, an obsession for me. I, I'm, I'm obsessed with this. Because success for this country. By the way, I love that you're obsessed with it because just because of where you're at and your positioning, it, it gives me a lot of hope knowing a guy like you is obsessed with it. By the way, is this the article, The Economist, that you guys wrote? In, uh, yes. Okay. Uh, for anybody that's watching this, if you want to read the article, we're going to put it below uh, on the eight points. Going back to it, you know, I'm sure many companies have come up to you and they've said, look, we're kind of experiencing gridlock. AIG is one of the carriers we write the most. I run an insurance company with 15,000 agents, and AIG is a good-sized company. One of the, they used to be one of the too-big-to-fail companies. Yeah. And if these companies who are behemoth, these are $100 billion companies, $200 billion companies, $300 billion companies, and when you go ask to uh, uh, give change, request for change, there's a couple things I learned. Uh, one of the best advice I got was 15 years ago by another man. His name was Jack. I used to call and ask for a lot of requests. And he says, look, pick 50 issues. Out of the 50 issues, which one's your number one? Only ask for one thing per year. Because if you ask for too many things, they're not going to do it for you. So if you're, you're, if you're able to put weight behind one thing, what would it be? And that's a corporation we're talking about. If U.S. was a corporation, it's a $3.5 trillion a year, you know, the numbers, you know, the amount of employees, 160 million employees that are currently working, a fourth that's right now not working, unemployed due to coronavirus, et cetera, et cetera. If you were to say for someone like you and someone who came and became your consultant and they said, Michael, uh, I suggest when you go to these guys at the top, these politicians, you know, you go to them with eight issues, they're not going to pay attention to any of it, but you can only choose one of them to bring to them? What is the one thing above all that you would say we need to start off with out of these eight? Well, we, we've got to change the incentives and the rules that are guiding what those political leaders uh, are in, what they're stuck in. Uh, right now, and we will talk, we'll talk about this uh, later, I mean, if we have primary elections the way we have today, we're, we're, we're going to have a hard time ever getting there. Because it's impossible to win a primary election unless you appeal to the partisans on your side. And if you want to do bipartisan, you may very well get knocked out in the next primary. Or your party might run somebody against you that is more right than you are. So the problem actually, it's not that there's a rationing of what policy is the most important. They're all important. It's, it's the system has to change if people are going to be, have even a possibility of solving any problem. Makes sense. Right now, it's, it's a system beautifully, intric intricately designed to so sort of freeze the status quo. Uh, and we just can't get anything done. And the parties would rather not do something as long, uh, than compromise and, and go against their base and go against their, their uh, partisans. So... I think, I think what I, I came to understand, and again, Catherine is, is, is way ahead of me here in, in understanding, understanding the reality, but over, over these, these months and years as we've been working on this, I think we're starting to understand it's the people serving us in Washington are stuck. They are kind of trapped. And uh, no matter how well-meaning they are, and no matter whether they care, uh, they're stuck in a system where they, they are neutralized 
from really making real progress. You know, uh, we've had we had twenty five thousand discussions of infrastructure in Washington. Everybody knows we got to build infrastructure right now with COVID, all the unemployment. Wow, what if we had a big infrastructure program? We could have hundreds of thousands of job, good jobs out there, and we've been fixing our roads and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but we had every time we have an infrastructure bill, the same thing happens. Can't agree, can't agree, can't agree, can't get it done, can't pass it. So it's it's a perverse system, and I think most Americans, I found, and most business people don't understand it. They just don't get it. What is this? This goes against everything we're taught in business. We got to be rational. We got to be thoughtful. We got to do the right thing. We got to move the ball forward. It's not like that. It's, it's, a, it's a different system. And, and Catherine knows more about it than probably anybody else. So, so fair enough. So what you said is your number one would be a system incentive rule, which was kind of a Catherine's fifth stage of grief. Uh, so you're, you're putting that as the number one thing that we need to work on and we can, we can build on that. Okay. So before I go to Catherine and kind of have her share with us her ideas and some of the suggestions that she has, let's talk about uh, the industry of politics. How big is the industry of politics? Well, um, it's a pretty big industry. Uh, it's very hard to get numbers because there's a lot of uh, strange rules about disclosure where you can do things without having to disclose it. Uh, that's the part of part of the uh, re- way the parties kind of retain control is they avoid having to disclose too much. But our best estimate uh, a couple of years ago was it's about a you know sixteen to twenty billion dollar industry. Uh, it employs probably tens of thousands of people, and it's not just the people working in the legislature in Washington and and, and so forth. It's, it's what we've come to call the political industrial complex. There's a whole bunch of actors that live off politics. The lobbying industry lives off politics. Hundreds and hundreds of very well-paid lobbyists that are living off of politics. There's all the people that run campaigns and do polling and campaign managers and all that sort of thing. That's a big industry. Uh, there's um, there's uh, a, a substantial... Uh, 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 there's, there's a bunch of think tanks now. They're in the politics industry. Their job is to, uh, you know, come up with the ideas and try to, you know, uh, get their uh, legislation passed, the things that they think are the important things to do. Uh, and and you, you can already see, just thinking about think tanks. Think tanks, you know what think tanks used to be? They used to be neutral and more scholarly. They're not like that anymore. They've become sucked in to the partisanship. So the think tanks are either, you know, more with the left or more with the right, and their job as a think tank is to get the left stuff done or the right stuff done, depending on, you know, what side they're on. And, they're, and their donors want that. Uh, so uh, we can tell story after story after story, but, uh, uh, but the problem is that this giant industry is all uh, uh, interconnected and again, it's, it's, it's all designed around the left and the right, the Republicans and the Democrats. And, and by the way, we haven't said this yet, but we must say it, Patrick. We are not against Republicans and we're not against Democrats. Uh, we, we don't think that these are bad people, but we think what's happened is that it, it's this competition that's been created. It's this way of competing. It's this way that they've structured the industry that is, is perverting our democracy, and uh, we've got to change that. 
And I think a lot of people in Washington would really like to be able to pass legislation that we really need. You, you think so? You, you I think so. I think a lot of people are, are frustrated by it. Uh, we know that partly from history, uh, and I don't want to get too far afield, but back in about 1890, in the United States of America, we had the same kind of mess that we have today. We had a tremendously partisan, gridlocked, you know, irrational political system, and it was a period of American history called the Gilded Age. The country was, um, it was still a you know, relatively young country, and uh, it was a mess. But you, you, in, in those days, you, when you went to the voting block, you picked up a ballot, and the ballot, you could tell by the ballot that you picked up whether it was a Republican ballot or a Democratic ballot. And so what happened was these poor citizens would go to the polling place, they'd pick up their whatever ballot, and then as they're walking in to, you know, vote, all these people there would be, uh, you know, hitting on them and trying to convince them to change their ballot. And, oh, you know, I can get you, I can get you into this whatever if you do this. You know, if you change your ballot, I'll do something. So we had a lot of corruption. The parties owned the newspapers. There was a Republican newspaper and a Democratic newspaper in every city. And the Republican newspaper talked about only about Republican stuff and the Democratic only Democrat. So today we have some polarization in the media too. And the media is sort of aligned with one side or the other in many cases. So, so we had this back in, you know, in, in, in 1890, 1900. And it was so bad that we couldn't get anything done. We had gridlock. We had frustrated people. Our country was struggling. And at that moment in history, citizens, thank goodness, decided this is not acceptable. We have to change this. And so we had something in America called the progressive era. You may have heard that phrase. And literally, our whole political system was changed. The rules were changed. Uh, for example, it used to be that the state legislature would determine who the U.S. senator would be from each state. You didn't get to vote for the Senate. The, the legislators in the system decided who the senator was going to be. There was all kinds of stuff like that. And one by one, these rules were changed. And uh, the, the, rational, the rationalization came back into our politics. So we believe that today, um, start restart that movement. And, and we really need to understand that Americans are going to have to take control. If we let the parties do it, if we let the politics system do it, not going to change. It's stuck. But if, if, if Americans can understand what's really going on, they can understand the, these kind of things that we're talking about. We think there's a lot of people that are incredibly frustrated with the system, that are incredibly frustrated with what isn't happening in America, uh, that are not, you know, they don't stand for inequality. <laughs> they don't want that, you know. And, and yet we haven't known what to do. We've known that you can give money to a candidate, but giving money doesn't matter. The candidate's going to have to run through an election process. It's going to turn them into whatever that, that turns them into. So uh, we've, we've, got a moment, we've got to seize an opportunity to, to, to move this system in a very different direction. And it's taken a long time and a lot of uh, help and insight uh, and, and a lot of uh, kind of leadership by Catherine to make this work. And uh, I think we're getting there. And we can talk later if you want about what's happening in different parts of the country because there's promising things happening. And we're moving now. We're actually starting to move. 
whether we can get it over the goal line, I think, is going to depend on how many citizens can actually understand this, how many people will make the investment to kind of get this, because I think uh, most Americans are very dissatisfied. I have a lot of follow-up questions for you, but I'm going to go to Catherine first, and then I'll come back to you. So, Catherine, uh, currently today, I mean, a, a, a part of uh, what we were talking about last night, currently today we have a duopoly. We have really two parties, right? You have the Republicans and you have the Democrats, and God forbid somebody on a third party decides to go in, whether a Ross Perot who got 18.9% in 92, uh, I think he also went in 96 as well. It was Dole himself and Clinton that they went, I didn't think, I think he only got like 8% in right. uh, 96, but in 92, he got 18.9%, created some momentum. We've seen the Johnson, Gary John, we've seen the Ron Pauls of the world create some momentum. Uh, Howard Schultz went in and then boom, hey, you're going to hurt the Democratic Party if you go in. And here's a guy that runs 400,000 employees. He wants to go in. There are a lot of people behind closed doors that sit there and say, look, you don't sound like a Democrat. And the other person says, you don't sound like a Republican. Then what the hell are we? Maybe there is something else out there that we are because we have a lot of things we agree with. Are we ready for a third party? So, so what is your suggestion to those of us that don't 100% relate with uh, the Republican Party and don't 100% relate to the uh, Democratic Party? I is it time for us to go to a third party? And if yes, how the hell do we do it? Okay, I love this stuff. <laughs> uh, because the situation is so bad, but uh, the answers are there for us. So let's step back for just a moment and remind ourselves something I said earlier, that in politics, we do not have, we don't get results, and there's no accountability for not getting results. So that means that we have fundamentally unhealthy competition in the politics industry. So we're the customers, the citizens are the customers, the public interest is supposed to be the customer, and that's what the politics system should deliver. But instead, the customer is not getting at all what they need or want. Now, in any other industry that is, that's this large and, and thriving, so Michael talked about the size of the political industrial complex at 16 to $20 billion. If you had an industry that big and that profitable, and the customers, you know, hated the industry essentially, which is we have very low approval rating of Congress, then you would, some entrepreneur, probably you, Patrick, would see this as a phenomenal business opportunity and you would come in with a new competitor to give the customer what the customer wants. But that doesn't happen in politics, right? We're all dissatisfied and there's no new competition. So uh, that's because the system have, has actually been constructed in a way where the parties, the two sides, have worked together in one particular way super well behind the scenes, which is to construct a system that protects themselves jointly from new competition. And fundamentally- Can you say that one more time? It's very, you said it very subtly. Can you say that one more time? Very powerful what you just said right there. Yes. So, we think Republicans and Democrats don't work together. Behind the scenes, they work very well together in one particular way. And that is to rig the rules of the game to protect themselves jointly from any new competition. I agree. And without competition, we will never have results or accountability. Competition is what 
delivers results to customers in every industry. So let's, let's look at this. So what I can do, it's very interesting because essentially we don't get results and there's no accountability. And when we get into this, I'll be able to show what's the primary reason we don't get results and what's the primary reason there's no accountability for not getting results. So let's start because you asked me about this accountability question. So think about it this way. We have this duopoly and there's no new competition. There's no accountability because the customer only has these two choices. So the only thing that either side needs to do to win is to convince the average voter to choose them as the lesser of two evils or because at least they say therefore what that voter believes. But what the parties don't have to do in a duopoly is deliver results. Because no matter how disappointed you are, you still likely prefer what your side says therefore than what the one other choice says therefore. So instead of results in the public interest, we get this gridlock and dysfunctional drama. The lack of new competition comes in large part from one thing that we as a country chose by accident. So back when the founders you know, created this extraordinary you know, uh, system of democracy in our constitution, there weren't great examples of democracies to look to for how we should run things day to day. And so they said, oh yeah, let's vote this way. Let's have something called plurality voting because Britain uses this for some of their elections. And what plurality voting is, is that whoever has the most votes wins. Well, that sounds super rational, but it turns out to have a little bit of a problem. Well, a big problem. So right now, in any election of more than two candidates, someone can win without having true majority. They don't have to have over 50%. For example, in a three-way race, a candidate could win with 34% of the votes and the 66% was split between the other two. And plurality voting is the single greatest barrier to new competition in our entire system because it creates this spoiler effect. So what the spoiler effect is that sometimes we don't vote for the candidate we really want to vote for out of fear that will inadvertently contribute to the election of the candidate we like the least. If you think back to 2016, there, you know, we think of uh, Clinton and Trump, but there were also two other candidates that had reasonable you know, uh, name recognition in the race. One was from the left, Jill Stein, and one was from the right, Gary Johnson. And people who liked Jill Stein on the left were essentially said, told, you can't vote for her because if you do, you will steal votes away from Hillary Clinton, who would have been your second choice, and you'll spoil the election for her and inadvertently help elect Donald Trump. And for people on the right, if you wanted to vote for Gary Johnson, the libertarian, you were essentially told, our system tells you, oh, you can't vote for Gary Johnson because you'll take that vote away from Trump and you'll, in, you'll spoil the election for him and you'll inadvertently help elect Hillary. Now, the spoiler problem, we see that there, I give that as an example, but the real effect of the spoiler problem is that most new competition never enters the race in the first place because they know they're gonna be considered just a spoiler. So you mentioned, uh, Patrick, Howard Schultz. 
So uh, some of your viewers may remember that in the spring of 2019, he considered getting in the presidential race as an independent. But people felt that he was much closer to the Democrat, uh, to Democrats, shall we say. And so the Democratic Party was livid because they believed that a Schultz candidacy would never win but they believed that he would take enough votes away from the eventual Democratic nominee to throw the election to Donald Trump. And the response was really quite vicious. Um, and, you know, Howard Schultz didn't end up pursuing that race. I promise you, the Republicans would be equally outraged if someone of that kind of profile and success uh, wanted to run as a Republican because they'd say, oh, he'll ruin the election for Trump. So that's why we don't get this new competition. Now, I want to also note, you, you mentioned uh, Perot. So Perot actually did win. It did run. He didn't win. He got, you know, close to 19%. And he wasn't a spoiler. People think he was, but he wasn't. Some uh, new analysis, statistical analysis has proven that. But what Perot did was put healthy competition into the system. And you might remember he ran very much in these charts about the debt and the deficit, our fiscal situation. So we're spending too much. And guess what? Perot didn't win, but the Republicans and the Democrats in the Clinton administration cooperated to deliver budget surpluses. They got a balanced budget. They actually got a surplus. We've never had one since. And we give credit to that to Clinton and to a lesser degree than to Newt Gingrich and the Republicans. Yep. But where does the credit go? The credit goes to competition because both parties were afraid that Perot's nascent you know, new party was going to do better and better and threaten them. And they didn't want that to happen. So they said, we better solve this issue so that people don't vote for him the next time. That's what competition does. You don't have to win in healthy competition to benefit the customer. So what we have to do is change the way we vote to get rid of the spoiler problem so that we can put the forces of competition in, not because, since Michael said, we're not against Republicans, we're not against Democrats, we're against what you know they're producing or relatively not producing right now, but we're not saying it would be better if one wins or the other wins or a third party wins. What we're saying is we need the forces of competition of candidates and ideas to create results. So it's not about changing who wins. It's about changing what whoever wins does. The question is, are they going to let you do this, though? I mean, you're going up against some, by the way, Newt Gingrich, I think, was the man of the year in 1995 Time Magazine, which was pretty insane to uh, see those guys make it work. It was almost like him and Tip O'Neill, Reagan and Tip O'Neill. It was a very interesting dynamic. Competition, the, competition. The question is, do you really think, you said the Democratic Party, how vicious they were towards Schultz. I can't believe what you're doing. And I remember in the documentary where uh, 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 Pre President Bush Sr., at the end of the documentary, the interviewer asks him, what are your thoughts about Ross Perot? It was the only topic he didn't want to talk about because I don't want to talk about Ross Perot. I don't want to talk about Ross Perot because in his mind, if it wasn't Ross Perot, he would have gotten reelected. Now, obviously, you said a different study that uh, it wouldn't have made a difference anyways because he still won by 7%, so it doesn't make a difference. But if they're going to be so vicious on both sides, Republican or Democrat, if they're going to be so vicious, 
Who's on your side to even want to support you for this to become a reality? You need some powerful people to be on your side to help you make this happen. Who are those people? Well, believe it or not, the most powerful people are the collective of the American citizens, the voters. So not in every case. Now, here's what I'm going to, this is so interesting. You know how I said earlier that we only do things, we only work on things, Michael and I, that are powerful, but also things that are achievable. Now, that doesn't mean that the things that we say are achievable are easy to get done, but they're possible. So, for example, some reformers think we need to change the system in a way that requires constitutional amendments. Well, nothing we're proposing requires a constitutional amendment because that would be a waste of everybody's time. For me to tell you that what it's going to take to change the system is a constitutional amendment, which we're never going to get. I mean, it wouldn't be worth your time or your viewers' time to be listening to us. So what we're talking about are two changes to how we vote that we can get. Here's how we get them. Very interesting. These important rules, like the one that creates plurality voting and the one that creates the party primary problem, they're not in the Constitution. The Constitution is super short. And it turns out that most of the rules that govern day-to-day behavior and incentives are just ones that, you know, have been kind of made up over time. And the Constitution delegates virtually all of the rules about how we vote to the states. So the states get to make those decisions. That's why sometimes when we're watching the presidential primary, we're like, how come it's different in Washington state than it is in Illinois or Wisconsin or something? Well, because the states made different rules. But that means that we can change these rules state by state. And in 26 states, the states long ago gave the people the opportunity to put issues on the ballot if they wanted to bypass the legislature, which in this case would be sort of bypassing the political industrial complex. So in 26 states, we can put the proposal that that we need to talk about called final five voting actually on the ballot. Citizens can vote for it. And if 51% vote for it, it's done, or 50% plus one vote, it's done. And that's half the states. And let me tell you, that pressure will make a huge difference in the other states because people in the other states will say, hey, we want that system too. Additionally, like Michael said, politicians want to make a difference. They do. Can we find stories where we think there's corruption? Sure, but really people want to make a difference. People love this country. This system will be so much better to work in that in the states that don't have ballot referendums, I believe a combination of the, the business leadership, the job creators in those states with the citizens saying, we need you, state legislature, to change these rules for Congress so that our country can function again, along with you know, Congress's individual politicians' desires to work in a functional system and be able to pass those uh, policies that Michael was talking about earlier, they will eventually see this is actually better for them. There's actually a small number of losers, the leaders of the political industrial complex, the ones who have made out in the system, and there's a huge number of winners. So again, in summary, we're going to put it to a vote in 26 states and or the legislature is going to pass it um, in any state in the country, and that we can get done. And I, I hope we'll get to specifically the package of what needs to be passed. Yeah, so, so what I think about when you're saying this, I'm sitting there saying, okay, 
how big, uh, uh, and maybe you have an answer to this, how big is the percentage of people that uh, uh, would agree for a need of a third party? Is it a 5% number, a 10% number, a 15% number? Because you've heard the number when Romney said 47%, all uh, that video came out, it got viral. It says, well, you know, the 47%, and you know the 45, 47. Let's just say it's 45, 45 on each side. Now, Democrats are going to be Democrats. Republicans are going to be Republicans. What is that number of people that are independent, libertarians or third party? Do we know that number? Yeah. So I, I want to answer that question and then tell you why it's less important than we think. So interestingly, in the country, all we hear about in the media is the Democrats think this and the Republicans think this. And you would think that means that half of the people think this and half think the other thing, but it turns out only 27% of the country, less than a third, identify as Democrat, and only 26%, so essentially the same number, less than a third on both sides actually identify as Democrats and Republicans. So what does everybody else identify as? Well, they self-identify as independents. Now that doesn't mean they're a monolithic block of people in the middle. This could include people who are libertarian or people who are a Green Party or people who have a whole different set of ideas. But 46% of people, close to half the country, says that they're not either one of the two choices we have. So that means that it's not just a question of a third party. It's a question of new ideas, new policies. I mean, the duopoly has so um, controlled our thoughts that we sort of think, oh, well, we only have two, so maybe three would be better. It's not two, three, or seven. The question is, is there an opportunity for a new competitor to threaten whoever the players are if they don't get things done? So it's fine if we have two, if they're delivering, but they're not delivering, so we have to have the threat of a new competitor that's essentially going to take their market share, and then they may just decide to improve their product themselves or indeed the new competitors will come in. So there's not a magic number of parties. The point is to have the system open to new competitors, new ideas, new candidates who are anywhere along the, spe along the spectrum. And then that improves the results. The difference, we, I always talk about political innovation. I don't talk about political reform because a lot of times there are multiple reasons for that. But one is that political reform can tend to deal with things about fairness and equality and moral issues of democracy, which is super important, or political reform can deal with, um, can be sort of a Trojan horse for party advantage. When we talk about political innovation, it's solely focused on results, meaning results that the system gives to the American people. So we're not trying to change things because it would feel better. We're trying to change only things that would affect Congress's ability to solve problems, to actually fix things. And that's what political innovation is. So, um, oh boy, I've talked so long, I'm practically forgetting your question. Let me, let me ask you, let me, let me go back to that, because you said the, uh, the, the, you know, the 45-45, you said they did a study and they noticed that... Uh, the, the true Democrat is only 27% of America, and true the Republicans about 26%, and the rest is pretty much everybody else that's kind of in the middle. Who, who did that study and that research? Because that's, that's very interesting to me. 
Uh, you know, I actually don't have the attribution right in front of me, but I'm going to send that to you after. So, you could and, because, and everybody that's watching it, we're going to put it below for you to look through it because that's yeah. a very interesting for, for me to look. I totally want to see that. Uh, we'll send you the graph with the attribution. Oh, we'll put it up so everybody else in the audience can see. Matter of fact, a lot of your PowerPoint is going to be in the presentations and post-edit when we go through that. But, but let's stay on that. So the question I was asking was the following. Is, so if we're going to have a third party, someone is going to take a hit for a couple elections. I mean, it's naive to think it's not going to be that way. And here's what I mean by, uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate, and you can push back all you want because I, I, I support the fact that I'd love to have a third party. You know, you go to India, I've been to India, and they'll say, we got 45 plus political parties, but it's really only three or four political parties. They'll go to Mexico and they'll say, oh, we got five different political parties, but it's really only three political parties, the conservatives, the socialists, and the Democrats, and they, that's kind of what they have going on over there. You can go to a lot of different places, but someone is going to have to take a hit, one of the sides, to agree on having a third party. And why would a party want to do that? So it's almost like Democrats are going to say, okay, you guys go through it first, not us. Or Republicans are going to say, no, no, no. You guys deal with your Howard Schultz first or your Mark Cuban first. Let him go as an independent, but he's really a Democrat. Oh, no, no, no. Why don't you guys experience your own Republican and yeah, a John Kasich, let him go as a Dem uh, independent, but he's really a Republican. Which party is going to be willing to give up first? I, 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 that's the challenge I see. It's so vicious. It's so ugly. It's so dirty. Who's going to want to give up one election, especially since all this money and jobs are on the line? Neither. Neither one is going to want to give it up, but they don't have to. Let me tell you how this works. So I want to just say what the answer, and it's not the only answer, it's just the most important answer. It's the, without changing this, none of the other answers will have enough power to change how Washington works. We need something called final five voting. That's what our book is all about. So people can learn the details in the book, but in summary, final five voting changes two things in our election system. One is we get rid of party primaries because party primaries create an eye of the needle to which no problem-solving <coughs> politician from either side can pass, meaning they're pushed to the right and left. Michael talked about that earlier. They can't come together to solve anything because they'll lose their primary. So there you go. We're just done. You can't get anything done because there's no connection between doing the right things for the public, for the public interest, and getting reelected. And we have a great graph on that. There's no connection between those things that's absolutely crazy if you want to get things done. So we get rid of the party primary and then this, and we have instead a nonpartisan primary where everybody's on the same ballot and the top five vote getters will go forward to the general election. Then in the general election, we're going to get rid of that plurality voting system that we sort of chose by accident when the country started. It's just what that seemed fine. But now we know that that system is what keeps out new competition, third parties, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, any, or independence, any kind of new competition. So we replace plurality voting with ranked choice voting. And again, we can learn all about this in our book or on our website. I won't give all the details now, although happy to if you want me to. And in this case, when you use ranked choice voting, it eliminates the spoiler problem. It means that no new competition automatically 
takes away the ability of, let's say, the current duopoly to win, but it does inject the new ideas and the competition in, and, it, and now there's no reason to force a Mark Cuban out of the race, to force a Michael Bloomberg not to run, to say don't vote for Jill Stein or don't vote for Gary Johnson. With ranked choice voting, that is not a problem because in the end, ranked choice voting means you have to win with a majority. You have to have over 50%. So let me ask a question right there. Let me ask a question right, because I went through it. I was reading in chapter five. I was going through it and I watched the video as well. Is do I have to rank everybody? Like, can I leave anything empty or I have to vote and rank them? No. So in ranked choice voting, and, and maybe we'll be able to put the way the ballot looks yeah. up. Um, in ranked choice voting, you can rank as many or as few as you want. So if you want to just have one choice, the way you already do, this is my favorite, and you want to cast your ballot for that person, absolutely no problem. You don't need to know about all the candidates if you don't want to. If you have an opinion on two of them, you can rank them. You can also you know, you might know who's your favorite and who's your least favorite um, and not care as much about the people in between. So you can do all of those things. And again, what's so interesting is ranked choice voting in our theory is less about changing who wins and more about providing the opportunity in final five voting for five candidates, five sets of ideas to be heard. So you could have a parole running on debt and deficit and bringing that issue to the fore on a regular basis. And even if she or he doesn't win, whoever does win will have seen what the voters had to say about that particular issue. So I wanna come back now and answer, you know, how we're gonna get this done because you're saying, well, one party's gonna have to give first. And what I'm saying is first, they don't have to give because they'll be in the hunt in ranked choice voting, just like everybody else. And they, if they deliver what the public wants, they will absolutely still win. They'll still win. But if they don't, then some entrepreneurial politician will have an opportunity that is not available now. And we will pass this state by state and so the, the parties won't have a say, the citizens will do it or the legislatures will do it. And then, and then the system will be implemented. And what's also really amazing about this, I just love this, is that we don't have to get this done in 50 states before we see the benefits as a country. Think about this, Patrick. If we pass final five voting, which means nonpartisan top five primaries, plus ranked choice voting general election, it's a package, final five voting. If we pass final five voting in five states, we would have immediately 10 senators and we could have, you know, anywhere, depending on the states, you know, maybe let's call it 50 representatives that would be in Washington, D.C. responding to a different set of incentives. Now, they may be, very well may be, Republicans, Democrats still, but they got elected by a majority in their district. They don't have to go through the eye of the needle that is a party primary, so they can't be pushed further to the left or the right. They can sign bipartisan compromise legislation if they want to and still make it through their primary. That's totally critical. And 
they serve as a fulcrum in a sense, which can serve as a bridge between the, between the parties and the people responding to the traditional incentives. Because if you had 10 senators who could be the yes votes on the infrastructure bill, or could be the yes votes on a, on a you know, sort of debt deficit reduction where we work on revenues and spending, and they know they can still get reelected even if they're Republicans or Democrats, we can really change in the existing system, leave the other 45 states the same, we can change how this works. So I am blown away all the time by the fact that when we looked at the system and decided what was the most important thing to change, it turned out that the most important thing to change is also something that we can change. And it also turns out that we don't have to change it everywhere to begin to get results. It's an unbelievable opportunity for the country to pass final five voting. Do we need politicians to pa uh, pass this? Do we, need the, do we need any politicians for this to pass? So we need whatever it's going to take to convince the voters to say yes to it in you know, those 26 states or five of the 26 states or we need the legislatures to say yes to it. And, but we don't need one particular politicians, we just need leadership. And this leadership is out there in spades in former elected officials. Okay, cool. so Can people- you give some names? Like if you were to say, here are five names that would get behind someone like this to help it pass, who would they be? That's so interesting. So I do have a list of names which shall remain nameless here for the people that I think will be the greatest leaders of this movement, like the greatest spokespeople. And they are people from the left and people from the right. Um, are, they admitted, are they currently in office? Are they currently- No, no, people who used to be in office are the ones that can say it shouldn't be this way. People that used to be in office are the ones that can say that it shouldn't be this way. Yeah, they can tell the truth. Would, hypothetically, would a guy like Newt be on that list? Oh, I'd love to talk to Newt Gingrich. I still carry around a business card that Newt Gingrich gave me years ago when uh, I sat next to him at a dinner. It's sort of a long story, but I have this business card and he wrote something very funny on the back of it and I still have it in my wallet. So yes, I really, uh, this is a plea to Newt Gingrich. I'd like to talk to you about this, Newt. This is uh, what we need to do, the new sort of, uh, what was that, a contract with America that he had, right? And this is, should be our new contract with the American people, final five voting, so that Washington, D.C. politicians can have great careers and deliver results. I mean, that's what we need. I, I want you to put this up, uh, one of our slides. The current system, there's no connection between getting results and getting elected. It would be like there's no connection between doing your job well and keeping your job. Nobody would run a company that way. But that's how we run our political system. And then in the new system after final five voting, oh, you're going to illustrate it for me. After final five voting, we create a connection between delivering results and keeping your job. That's you know, this, this sounds extraordinary. Good. This what? sounds good, but this is, this is where I'm at with my butt. It's a big butt, okay? Yeah. So if this is a pipeline we're going through yeah. and we want to get final five voting, you have to go through somebody. Who are these people that we need to go through to get this? Because the idea sounds good, but what, who do you need to go through to get that? It's not, we can't just say, here's what we're going to do to change the voting. Some of the people we have to go through, aren't they existing politicians and decision makers? You, you don't. 
in the 26 states that have a referendum, how you get to vote on the issue. Meaning there would be, here, let me step back for a moment. So in 26 states, the citizens can vote on an issue on the, on the uh, when they go in to vote for the president. So let's say they would go in in November and they're going to choose who they're voting for for president. And at the same time, there will be a line that says, essentially, you vote yes for final five voting or you vote no for final five voting. And then if it's 50% plus one voting yes, final five voting is set in that state. The way that that final five voting question gets on that ballot is that citizens collect signatures. The process is a little different in each state, but they collect signatures and essentially then it's on the ballot. So they do not need the permission of any members of the political industrial complex to get this on the ballot. It, is, it takes the question out of the hands of the political industrial complex and gives it to the citizens. Got it. So that's for half the states and then in the other, there's actually great opportunities in legislative states as well. And I wanna, uh, I wanna come back quickly and say, I want to highlight two particular existing politicians. You know how I said it's former politicians who can tell the truth? Well, I want to highlight two existing you know, people serving right now in Congress who are already telling the truth. They're particularly courageous. And that is Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin and Democratic Congressman Chrissy Houlihan and they wrote the foreword for a book. I believe you saw that. Mm -hmm. Yep. These two Congress people who were elected, Chrissy in 2018, Mike in 2016, were both uh, served in the armed forces before this. And when they, what they say in the foreword, and I encourage everybody to read the book to see this because it's very eloquent. They say, hey, when we were veterans, when we were serving the armed forces, we were on the same team working for the good of America. And then out of that same desire of public service and serving America that caused us to join the military, we ran for office and now we're in Washington, D.C. And for some reason, we're automatically on different teams. Why aren't we still on the For America team, even though we have different ideologies, trying to find something that works? And they say it shouldn't have to be this way. And they endorse in this forward, the ideas that we have in the book, so specifically, you know, final five voting, and they're courageously saying that it doesn't work, and it could work and should work, and, and we should make that difference. And there will be more and more people like them, and we have already in Wisconsin, again, two courageous legislators, uh, State Senator Dale Kuinga, a Republican, State Representative Danny Reamer, a Democrat. Again, they both serve in the military now in the, uh, in the National Guard or the Reserves. I'm sorry that I'm forgetting. And they came together in Wisconsin to say, we need to pass final five voting for our congressional election. So there are examples out there of existing people serving now who are courageous to say what's so. And certainly the formers, they're ready to say what's so. Okay, so here's a follow-up for you, and then I'm going to go to uh, uh, Michael. I got a follow-up for you here, and uh, I'll go to Michael. 
So you know how uh, when you're uh, valuing the company, when you've gone through this before 2015, so the number that buyers want to see is what? EBITDA, right? The EBITDA, EBITDA, EBITDA. What's the EBITDA? And then they go through the formula. Okay, so then you have to go through your uh, uh, audited financials. Then you have to go through quality of earnings. You remember when you had to go through quality of earnings and they want to see Deloitte, uh, which by the way, I think uh, a company that, uh, uh, Michael, you were on a board of, uh, uh, a consulting company, I think was purchased by Deloitte, something like that you were used to yeah. be part of. Yeah. So like right now we're going through Deloitte or PwC and KPMG. That's kind of the negotiation we're having. So you know what phase I'm at. And if you go through this, the tax implications of ASC 606, which is going to help you with the even on et cetera. You know what I'm talking about? Like these I guys. Do. Are in the, okay. So I'm speaking. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's you and not me today. But I wish you the best. <laughs> awesome. You know, uh, but, but the point I'm trying to make to you is, uh, is this. So, you do the math in one way, EBITDA favors you. You do the math in a different way, the EBITDA doesn't favor you. If you do appraisal in one way, the appraisal of this house is going to be uh, $288,000 less than if you do the appraisal this way, right? Okay. So let's just say we go the route that you're talking about, okay? Let's just say we go through the, the uh, 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 top five and, and the, and the, and the uh, philosophy that you have. Say we go this route, great. There's a part where you talk about Paula Page, right? A Tea Party Republican that ran and he won and, you know, 37.6% and becomes the governor and he's maybe not the most liked governor that they ever had, but he got reelected. And if it wasn't, if it was for this, he wouldn't have gotten reelected, let's just say, right? So if we were to change the voting system that we have to what you're suggesting, who takes a hit? Can you be specific with names? Because these models will show who is going to take a hit, in what areas it doesn't make a difference, and in what areas, you know, who's going to, you know, uh, take advantage of. Because if this model benefits Republicans, well, Democrats are going to say, I'm not in. And if this model benefits Democrats and Republicans are going to say, we're not in. So have we already modeled it out to know which party this benefits and who it doesn't? You know what I'm asking, right? Uh, yeah, I, I do know exactly what you're asking. So you notice that we're not proposing gerrymandering reform. Okay, that you mentioned that before, Elbridge, Jerry, and everything. So not to get deep into that, but one of the reasons that we don't work on that is A, it's not necessary because final five voting takes care of it, but B, because gerrymandering reform, if you fixed that right now, actually it would likely in Congress accrue more to the benefit of Democrats. And that's the feeling, meaning it's a partisan reform. It's a reform that is a Trojan horse. Now, gerrymandering is awful. We should not have it, okay? It's terrible. But nothing we propose is like that. In order to be categorized as achievable, we require that it not be a partisan um, change to the rules. And as proof of this, essentially, members of the political industrial complex on both sides don't want final five voting, except for, as I mentioned, these courageous people who are saying it needs to be different. But members on both sides hate this equally, shall we say, because it affects both of them theoretically, you know, equally. And I also want to say that, remember, this whole, oh, who would win? That's as if 
looking at a past election and saying who would have won that election if we had these rules, but that's not a good analysis. Because that's if we had these what you say? That's what they're gonna ask for. They're I mean, gonna ask that, but my point is if we had these rules, we wouldn't have had that election because different people would have been running it. The whole thing would have played out differently. Even the Republicans and Democrats who were running would have been taking perhaps different positions in this race. And remember, yes, everybody's going to ask that, but it's still our job to say that's not the important question. We're not trying to figure out who would have won in the past. We're trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And we're less concerned about who's winning and more concerned about what they're doing. I think, you, I, I think you would lose me if you approach me like that. And I, I'm just I was, very transparent with you. Here's why. Yeah. Because for me, if somebody comes in and says, here's a model, this is what we're running. Both of you guys know what modeling is. You've done it more than I've done it. You, 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 Michael, you've done billions of these and you ran a company doing a quarter of a billion dollars per year. And so you, you, you've gone through this yourself and you've gone through a transaction. Uh, you know, for somebody, for for. And, and assume the people, because you're saying the powerful people are what? We the people, right? It's not the politicians. We're the powerful ones. Great. The, the people- Not now, but we can be, yeah. No, we can be, and not now. I agree with you. But if you're talking to the people, people need simple uh, uh, stories to simplify, to connect with them, not the typical, you know, scholarly messages, because once you're over their head, the message doesn't go, make America again, easy. It's time for change. Easy. I have a dream. Easy. All of that is easy. Some of the stuff that becomes technical, how do you explain that to the average guy that doesn't follow politics, doesn't care for politics, doesn't trust politicians? So if, if somebody came and said, okay, cool, can we run some models to see what it looks like? I would be so curious to know in the last, and, and here's, here's where I'm going with this. You know how they say, well, uh, uh, Barack Obama cost this many seats and they lost their jobs because of Barack Obama or Barack Obama got so many people reelected because he got reelected and your jobs are secure. Okay. Trump is going to cost the house. They lose the house, but he's got the Senate and they got the Senate and he's going around helping people to become the Senate or replace or governor. You know, that game's going to keep happening, right? That's not going away. If this model ran and it showed that that cannot happen, you know, it's, it's, uh, the voters may sit there and say, you know what, I don't know if I really want to look at it because uh, there's not a really a model about it. Versus if there was a model, then I go through 80 names and I say, there's a 28% chance this person wouldn't have gotten reelected. We don't know who would have, but there's, 20, there's a 93% chance this would have been the same. Is there a way to model this out? And I, maybe it's a request that's not possible. Is there a way to model this out? It wouldn't be helpful because you would be imposing a model. It wouldn't be valid is what I should say. It wouldn't be valid or helpful because you'd be modeling something on, from the past with a set of new rules when people would have played the game differently. It's like saying, it's like saying who would have won that basketball game if we didn't have the three-point shot rule? Who would have won it? Well, people would have played the game differently. As soon as you put in that three-point rule, I, I don't know that much about sports, but as soon as you put in that three-point rule, the game changes. The players are different. They play differently. So you can't say who would have won that under different rules because the people would have played it differently if it took something else to win. It's not valid. 
Now here, but you are nonetheless totally right, Patrick, that this conversation is not going to win the day. So this conversation is about people who are interested in the death, and it's about making the case to business leaders and entrepreneurs who thought everything was so irrational. But for people who are going to vote, for example, in these referendums, we really need to you know, be respectful of their time and interest and talk about more choice, more voice, and better results. And if you want to stop being disappointed with the choices you see when you go in the election booth, in the, you know, in the voting booth, this is for you. If you want to stop being disappointed with not feeling represented in Congress, and if you want to stop being disappointed with the results, this is for you. More choice, more voice, better results. So we make it about, you know, people's experience who don't want to spend the time to hear this whole thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm just saying because the, the, the part I'm talking about is one, I'm talking technical modeling. The other part I'm talking about, keep it simple, stupid, where the, the whole world, we're not in your world. We can sit there and say, oh, I understand what they're saying. It makes sense. But what I can say is I am all for it. Like I'm a cheerleader. Imagine a 6'5", 240 guy in a mini skirt jumping around and doing the dancing. I would do that for you, even though it wouldn't help much, because I'd love to see a third party come out and get some kind of results. So I appreciate that. I'm going to go to Michael now. So you're going to be a, I just, oh, I want to follow up and close the deal here. Tell me. From, <laughs> so you're going to be a cheerleader? If, if, you, if you want me to dress up and do, you know, cheering, dancing, I'll even put a chant for you and sing for you, we would, we would definitely consider it. Okay, so somewhere in your viewers, we have some musical talent. So we're <laughs> asking one of those viewers to make a chant because that's not my talent. And then we'll put this all together and we'll come back because seriously, Patrick, we do need champions. Uh, oh, no, I'm with you. And, and I'm with you. It's one of the reasons why uh, 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 I got excited about doing this because this is a topic that it sounds strange. You asked me yesterday, why are you interested in politics? Like who cares? Why is it, you know, why gets you, why does this get you excited? Uh, I think, uh, uh, a lot of the politicians right now are bullying the voters, and I'm not happy about that. And I'd like to see the voter who is the product, the customer, who's always right. This is why I trust capitalism. Richard Wolf and I got into a big heated debate, which you saw a couple clips of it. And he had a perspective of capitalism that I fully disagree with, because when there's competition, good, the only people that win when there's competition is the customer. Customer wins a ton, and I think we need more competition today, and I'd love to see that happen. Let's say we introduce, this is the last thing, and then I know you're, Michael, and I'm going to rest while Michael takes it from here, but we introduce a new term in our book, free market politics, a politics which delivers the, what healthy free markets deliver, I, innovation, results, accountability. That's catchy. That makes sense to me. Free market politics makes so much sense to me. Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense to me. Free I love it too. Politics. I absolutely love it. The best of what the free markets should deliver. I love it. Awesome. Awesome. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to go to a very serious question with Michael, uh, which I think the entire audience is uh, thinking about right now. Michael, this is a tough question. So I'm going to go to you with a tough question. I noticed when I was talking to Catherine, you were eating something. Were those jelly beans you were eating? M&M's. M&M's. I thought I had them. I was trying to catch them every time. <laughs> I said, it looks like it was blue, 
But what is blue? It, it, it wasn't Jelly Bean. So if the audience is wondering, it's M&M's. We're going to put the link below for those of you guys that want to go buy M&M's. This is not <laughs> sponsored by M&M, by the way. It just so happens he loves M&M's. Okay. So, Michael, let's go to you. Here's one of my challenges, and I think one of the issues. And by the way, we're going to go into a little bit business as well, if you don't mind, because the audience kind of wants to know some of the issues that we're facing today, and you're uh, the best person to talk about this. So we'll spend some of the time uh, uh, on business and uh, we'll go from there. So, Michael, my, my, uh, my challenge is when I went to OPM, I went to OPM, and the content, amazing. I learned so much by everybody that was there. I mean, the teachers were so helpful. Everybody was so helpful. Lawrence Culp inspired the hell out of me when I came back just seeing how he thinks and what he did with the company, and now he's at a completely different place. I think he's with GE. I don't know if he's with GE or not. I think he left there. He's with GE now. And, and, and just talking to the other guys that were there as entrepreneurs, one of the days Hillary Clinton and Trump were debating. So you can kind of see what season I was there. And they had the chow hall. You know where the chow hall is by the OPM, right by the ground. Yeah. So you go to the mm-hmm. chow hall. And uh, uh, yeah, so we, we're in there. There's about four or 500 of us that were sitting there watching. The teachers came out. A lot of the people came out and they're watching. I'm sitting on the outside, Okay. As a person that's voted on the left and the right, and I went from being a Democrat who was a fan of Clinton, Bill, then I went to Republican because I was a fan of capitalism, then I go to being a registered independent. Okay, I'm on the outside, I'm kind of watching everybody, and the first thing on my mind is what? Economy, because that's what affects my kids, my family, my, you know, my businesses, what I do. I was flabbergasted to see how many people, I didn't see one person in that room for Trump. Literally, three, four hundred people there, 100% of people were all Team Hillary. And they couldn't stand anything Trump said. Now, Trump is obviously a very uh, uh, controversial figure, we can agree. You know, I don't think we've had a person that goes after people the way he does ever in politics, as a president, Twitter, all this other stuff. How does a university like Harvard have so much leanings politically on one side, on the left, where somebody like me, who has three kids, I want to teach these guys well, and I grew up in Iran, and the university I see is Harvard, is like the place you want to have your kids go through, and we're talking about the five stages, you know, first it's policies, you know, it's a candidate I got behind, which she got behind Obama, then it was policies, then it was culture, then it was independent candidate, then it was system, you know, all of that stuff. Sometimes the, the voters and, and, and people out there don't trust the kind of uh, influence universities are having over our kids that we trust to send to a school to pay 50 to 70 grand a year for four years, knowing they're going to come out not liking certain policies and being pushed away from capitalism. What role do you think universities and professors are playing in the current policies and politics that we have in America? Well, I, I wish uh, we could play a very important role, and I think we could play a positive role. Uh, I don't. I think you're right now. I think right now universities are sort of anti-politics. Uh, you don't talk about politics, and and if you do, it's very liberal, you know. And that's kind of the um, and that and that's fundamentally because of the faculty and the nature of faculty and the kind of people they are and and their seniority and so forth. Um, I think at, at Harvard Business School we have a lot of people here that really are very much about markets and very much about capitalism. Uh, but other parts of the university, that's viewed with some suspicion. As you know, capitalism is not, um, is not really well liked right now in, in 
this moment in history. And uh, I, I think part of that is that there's too much inequality and there's too many business businesses that are prospering and people are getting paid a lot of money and they're doing well, but the ordinary citizen isn't doing so well. And I think if we want to get into the, the COVID situation, we're, we're, at a, we're at a really fundamental inflection point now in capitalism because a lot of companies, given the COVID situation and given the, the, all the, the emotions that that has triggered, companies now believe they have to make a difference. They have to make a positive difference. They have to have a purpose. They have to do good. They have to take care of their employees. So we're, we're right now in the middle of what I hope is a very powerful inflection point around capitalism and how it's viewed and, and its ability to get support from citizens. And I think that's going to affect our, our politics as well uh, over time. Um, if I could just take a minute, given the discussion here with Catherine, I just want to make sure that all of, of the viewers understand a few additional points that I think will help address some of the questions you, you, you asked. So, so the first thing is we've already covered. Our government is failing on economic policy, on social policy, we're failing. We're not getting anything done, zero. Um, and we haven't in decades. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and inequality is going up, all kinds of, of bad outcomes are, are coming on in this country. Um, so why is this? And I think what, what we all have to understand is, is the way the government is structured now, we have we have these parties, and these parties have leadership, and they have enormous clout and enormous power, the parties. So, for example, if you're a young uh, uh, person wanting to run for office, um, and uh, you say you get elected, um, uh, and say that you don't follow your party leader's advice on what to vote for, you're gone. Party leaders with their ideology, see, they think ideology. They're on the right ideology or the left ideology. It's not about solutions. It's not about uh, what, what gets the best job done. It's, it's literally about these ideological partisan differences. And uh, the, the rights for the, all the conservative stuff, uh, extreme or not, and the left is for the progressive stuff, extreme or not. And we've just been through that, you know, in the, in the campaign. Uh, and um, you, what we've got to understand is, is this system is not designed around getting things done. It's not designed about being practical, doing common sense stuff, having a rational discussion, uh, making the best choices. Uh, it's not about compromise. Today, uh, the parties don't compromise. They will not. That's why we have no uh, infrastructure bill, because there are certain aspects of infrastructure that the Democrats like and certain aspects that the Republicans like, and they're not going to give in. They, they don't want the other party to get any benefit. We, we've had lots of high-skilled immigration bills to make immigration more rational in America, and uh, we, both sides have put forward those bills, but in either case, we've not passed the bill because the other side will block it because they don't like this part of it because it doesn't fit with their ideology. So we've got to understand now that, that the people, uh, I, I'm coming back to your point about the, the people in the system and how they are going to respond to all this. And right now, the people that are members of Congress and members of the Senate even, um, they are totally controlled by their party leaders. 
Do you know that if you put a bill forth in the House or the Senate, your party leader is going to determine whether that bill even gets considered. They're going to determine whether that bill even is voted on. Uh, the Speaker of the House can block uh, even a vote on a bill, even if they know that the majority of the House would have passed that bill, because they are controlling the, the agenda based on ideology. So we have a system now that is really awful if you're a thinking member of Congress or a thinking member of the Senate and you want to do the right thing, you are living in a torture, a torturous system. And so we believe that if we can get the momentum going on, on some of these, these, uh, these, these innovations, that a lot of the uh, people in the system, like the two people that uh, members of Congress that Catherine talked about, they're, they're going to actually join in. Uh, and they're going to do it carefully because they, 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 they don't want to get, you know, excommunicated by their party leaders. I mean, you probably know um, Eric Cantor, who was the Democratic leader, who I happen to know. I've known him for a long time. He's a terrific guy. He got kicked out by his party leaders because he was too friendly. He was too collegial. He was too much compromise. He was talking to the other side. And he got kicked out. So I think there's a, there's a pent-up demand for the smart, capable people that we do have in government to actually do the right thing. But right now, the system is just like a straitjacket that is, is holding people from doing, doing the right thing. So I, I, I'm more optimistic. Also, be clear. Your viewers should know. We have ranked choice voting in the state of Maine. The citizens passed it. We have ranked choice voting on the ballot in Massachusetts in November. And I'm feeling optimistic that that's going to happen. And it's all across the country. We're starting to see these ballot initiatives. We have uh, in Florida, we're running in for, there's a nonpartisan primary legislation that's looking good, you know, that, that we might get around, getting around this partisan primary system. So stuff is happening. And what Catherine is saying is if we can get this going in, in, in even a few states, it starts to have a ripple effect. And so, I, I, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I totally get your modeling questions, but I think we have to tell, we have to, there's a story to tell here about how we can actually get this thing done and how the, even, as, even the party leaders are going to bitterly fight it. Uh, it. It can still happen. And, uh, you know, we, we, we uh, I, so, so that, now let me get back to your, uh, to your, to your, your question uh, um, about, uh, I think we were really talking more about, about capitalism and, and about, you know, the, the right and the left. And yeah, I, I, let, let me, let me clear it up for you. So it kind of, yeah. kind of help you out is uh, uh, I'm a capitalist. I'm a diehard capitalist. I escaped Iran to come here because I was controlled. I was uh, dictated. I had fear, manipulation, all of that. I didn't have a voice. So I went to Germany, found a way to come out here. So as somebody who's a capitalist who has three kids that he's raising with a certain set of values and principles, and they read all the books that are opposing books as well. I mean, this painting behind me, these are four characters behind me. You may recognize some of the faces. I do. sitting in a bank vault uh, with Milton Friedman right there in this bank vault, and they're debating two books. One is Communist Manifesto, and the other one is uh, Karl Mar uh, uh, Ayn Rand's uh, Atlas Shrugged. I'm a guy that likes capitalism, and I grew up in a family that they were constantly fighting on both sides. But the fear is 
you know, when, when you're saying it's not media, and then we're saying, uh, and media is not the concern, those are not the priority concerns, our mind is still not mature till about 25, 26 years old. You read these books, there's different ages, some say 24, some say 28. You know what I'm talking about. So my, while the brain is still being established, I'm sending them to you and I'm saying, Michael, take care of my boys and my girls for four years. Please teach them the right values and principles. And they're coming out slowly but surely, not liking capitalism like they used to. They're coming out slowly but surely, looking at rich people as bad people. They're coming out slowly but surely saying, I don't know, you know, it's unfair, dad, that they're doing this. And I'm not talking about social issues that matter, that there is unfair and there is some uh, area of correcting an injustice. I'm purely talking economically. What role is that playing in the way we're voting today? Because as you know, it's easier to persuade the younger audience than it is to persuade a 40-year-old audience that's kind of been around the block. And this younger audience, the largest generation, bigger than baby boomers. So what role do you think college and universities are playing in the way we're voting and in the future of politics in U.S.? Well, I, I think the, the, the narrative of, of capitalism and how it's perceived and what is being reinforced in the university and what you know, professor types are saying, uh, not so much at Harvard Business School, you know, because we're all about capitalism here. Uh, uh, but we're about, but we even here now are talking a lot about, well, capitalism isn't just making money. Capitalism is a broader concept, and it, it's got to be good for society. And we just can't think about benefiting ourselves and our company. We've got to benefit. We've got to benefit our consumers. We've got to create a good environment for our employees. We've got to make sure that the communities on which we depend for our educated people and the people we hire, we've got, we've got to make sure that the, our community is doing well. We, you can't succeed as a capitalist in a broken community that's failing, you know? So I think, I think what's happening is the idea of capitalism got too narrowed, it got too extreme, it got too much about, uh, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's just go up and up and up in terms of valuation and, and, salaries and stock options and all these kind of things. And this tremendous uh, gap in wealth between, uh, you know, folks in the business community and, and, and many others has, has created a lot of resentment. But I, I, I got to tell you, I think we have the greatest opportunity right now that I've ever seen in my many years doing this for capitalism to be is repositioning itself. And uh, I think, uh, you know, you're probably familiar with, uh, you know, Larry Fink and, and this movement about corporate social purpose. And a lot of people, you know, when, when that whole idea was starting to get talked about, were just rolling their eyes. Oh, yeah, that sounds, you know, that sounds pretty soft to me. But I think what people are starting to understand is that the way business operates and the way capitalism works can either benefit society and improve communities and have ripple effects that make things better, or capitalism can be very narrow and selfish and self-interested and a few people can win at the expense of everybody else. And so I think uh, we, what we, I think frankly, we need capitalism. We, as capitalists, we need to do better. We need, to, we need to have a different paradigm. We need to broaden our view of what our job is. It's not just about maximizing our income. It's about, it's about a broader understanding that you can't have a successful company if you don't have a successful society. And right now, partly because of our political system, we don't have a successful society. 
know, we have a lot of people that don't have good health care. We have a lot of people that, uh, you know, don't get good education. They don't even have a chance. We have a lot of people that get, you know, discriminated against just because of, you know, their race or their background or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, and we in capitalism haven't taken any responsibility for any of that. You don't think so? I don't think we've taken very, very many. Well, how could you say that? How could you say that? You know, 40, 45% of all jobs are by small business owners. These are people that risk their salaries to go create yeah. a business and sacrifice, lose. And we, we forget how many of them filed bankruptcies and lost 10 years of their lives and filed divorces and ended yeah. up having bad relationships. All we think about is what they do wrong. We don't think about the amount of sacrifices. You see, mm -hmm. I, I was speaking with a Cornell University professor at an event, and he says the thing with capitalism that gets a black guy is capitalism's about, you know, the collective, but also not forgetting the individual, meaning we need both. I agree with mm -hmm. you on the collective side, but I think we're bashing the individuals lately. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be very careful because if, if kids grow up not admiring these guys, they're not going to want to be these guys. If kids grow up yeah. just admiring rock stars and superstars and Instagram models and all these people that are out there, they're going to be like, I don't want to go be an entrepreneur because they get mm -hmm. hated by everybody. Why would I want to be somebody that's hated? Yeah. So I, mm -hmm. I, think, I think sometimes uh, uh, the, the element of recognizing the person that took the most risk we don't tell those stories. We only tell the horror stories, and it's unfortunate. And again, I'm bringing it to you because you may be the most influential person in the world of business when it comes down to professor. I, I admire you. I study you. I'm a student of yours. So I'm talking to you as a guy that uh, looks at you and the things you write, I read and I devour. So, And I want to be able to make sure that, you know, when my kids decide to go through a program, I know they're going to get recognition to say, son, it's okay. Go create a good idea. Do a better job. Mm -hmm. Give back yeah. to the community. And it's okay. So sometimes yeah. I see that language changing because I also think someone like you, and again, you can say, Pat, you're so full of it, you're wrong. I also think somebody like you, because where you've been, you got your degrees both from Harvard. I think both of them you got from Harvard. Not, not, not all three of them. Two of them is from yeah. Harvard, right? Yeah. So, you're, you're somebody that's also in that environment for so much that you get pressured and you eventually you're like, man, maybe, maybe they're right and maybe you're getting pressure to, you know, forget about the original Michael Porter that was so inspired because of sports and golf and competition and mm -hmm. how much sports and competition can help for business and life and all this other stuff. So I just, I'm just putting it in your ear to yeah. not forget the individual. Yeah, well, I get that, but I and again, I, I can tell you, I'm the the the, the most card carrying capitalist on the face of the earth. You know, that's what I do. I believe in it. I believe in competition, and frankly, I believe in smaller businesses and smaller companies. But what we've had is too many of our big companies have, uh, you know, uh, used their cloud or their power to distort the system, and uh, and and to make things work. I mean, we have companies now that are that are uh, lobbying for getting their merger deals through the Department of Justice by giving them a lot of money for lobbying, you know? And so I think, I think we have, uh, we've got to recalibrate what good capitalism looks like, we've, and particularly among the bigger companies. The small business people are heroes. There's just no doubt about it. And uh, they, they're almost inherently benefiting their community. Uh, because they care about the neighbors and the business next door. and They care about making sure that the public services are good. And they have a tremendous powerful effect. What I worry about is the, 
the, the, the, you know, kind of at least some subset of the major, major corporations are, have been looking at their role too narrowly. And, uh, and we need to open up. And that's all I'm saying. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything more than that. I think that's the best transition to ask you a question about what happened with Hertz. I'm sure you saw it where $16.3 million of bonuses they paid to 330 uh, uh, of their executives with $600,000 bonus to the new CEO that just got hired a month ago right before filing bankruptcy and they're in debt $19.8 billion. How do you process that when you hear something like that taking place? It's, 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 it's a little bit like the party leaders. It's the people at the top are out for themselves and they don't feel that they have a responsibility for their whole workforce and, and the success of their company and the communities in which they're operating and all the vendors that are supplying them that depend on them. It, it's just a narrow, somewhat, I, you know, very narrow view of, of, of what the goal is and what is success. And I think we have to open that up a little bit. And uh, there's lots of, lots of bad examples like that, that, that I've encountered over the years. And, and, uh, but there's nothing that can do more good and benefit more people than capitalism. Uh, if we get it right, uh, companies can have epic effects on society. They can change everything. They can, you know, but, but we have to, I think, broaden a little bit our responsibility because part of it is because government is failing. If we have great schools, if we had good infrastructure, if we had people good health care that wasn't too expensive, if we didn't have a lot of discrimination, if our government wasn't mistreating minorities, you know, if all that wasn't going on, maybe, you know, we wouldn't. But I, I think we are in a society now where business has to take more responsibility for some of these things that government is failing to do. Now, Catherine and I believe strongly, we got to fix government. You know, we got to fix the system. Um, and we got we to be honest that the system is not working. And we got to be honest that we can't just play the game the way they've created it. I mean, one of the things that Catherine said that I just want your viewers, everybody to know this, all these rules for how government works and how, capital, how the policy, political system works, they're all created by the parties. They're not in the Constitution. The Constitution didn't say it. The party said, oh, this would be good for us because if we do this, it'll be impossible for a new competitor to, to come in. So, so this system has been, is, has been perverted, and, and it was our greatest strength. You know, we had this amazing, effective democracy for so many years, and now we don't. And, uh, but we got to take it on. And to take it on, you have to understand the bitter reality of what it really is and what it's become. And, uh, and uh, you know, our, our passion in life is, is, to, is to get people to understand what it is. And therefore, we think a lot of Americans will want to get on this particular uh, path. Final questions here before we wrap up. So current, a lot of people are asking me questions saying, Pat, what's going to happen with the airline industry? You, you've spoken about the airline many, many times and yep. it's not a big profit margin business. You know, people get into it because it's kind of sexy, but they're getting hammered. The rental car business is getting hammered. Yep. Hotels are getting hammered. Entertainment industry is getting hammered. Las Vegas is getting hammered. So many different industries are getting hammered, but some of them also doing very good, you know. Really well. What do you see happening over the next three, six, twelve months? And are some industries completely going to have to change the way they do business, or are we going to go back to business as usual? Well, I, I don't think. Uh, I, I think I think we're going to see a change in how we do business uh, because what's happening is the nature of competition is changing. Uh, the uh, nature of 
industry structure is evolving. Um, you know, so companies are, the channels are changing, the suppliers and supply chain is changing. There's a lot going on that is really going to cause a lot of companies to have to modify their strategy. You know, so far, most of the response of business to COVID has been very tactical. You know, we got to follow the rules. We have to work at home. We have to uh, make sure everybody's safe. Um, um, and that was the place to start. Uh, but uh, what, what we're going to see over time is businesses are changing. So uh, let's take one example of uh, the ha- kind of lawn and garden business, which I happen to know very well. Okay. That's booming. Why? Because in this world that we're living in now and, and with people often more at home, they want to they work in their yard. They want to have a vegetable garden. They, they, they want to plant stuff and beautify their home. And, and that's one of those industries that's, that's, that's booming despite the, uh, the overall crisis. Uh, we, see, uh, we see other industries like that. So some industries are going to benefit by the needs that are changing. Uh, other industries are, are going to be threatened by it. And, and the question is, uh, so we're going to have a different economy when this is over. Uh, but we're going to go back to transportation eventually. People are going to travel again. Uh, we're going to we're, we're gonna, hotels are going to have 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 a role. But you know, how do you migrate? You know, in this trough, how, how do the, how do these organizations migrate and, and survive their way through? And and the ones that are lucky enough, how do they take advantage of the opportunity that's been created? And and one of the things that everybody uh, you know should know is whatever business you're in. You've got to think about the influence of this digital technology, okay? So instead of going to a workout studio, now you can just do the workout at home, you know, on video, you know? And there's a lot of products and services that are now being delivered and, and, and take a different form. And this digital revolution has gotten to the point now where it's really starting to change competition and it's got to be part of your strategy. And you can't just say, oh, no, we just do it the traditional way. Uh, so uh, I, I, I think that um, we're having a real structural change in the economy. It's not that it's always going to be new and it's never going to go back. A lot of things are going re- to you know, come back, but many things are going to change as well. So the idea that we have a supply chain in China, we're not doing that anymore, you know. Uh, people are not sourcing in China because they don't want to get cut off. They, they don't want to get uh, subject to, uh, you know, a pandemic. Uh, they, they want their suppliers closer to home. So we're seeing all kinds of interesting trends in terms of the competition. And so every CEO now has to look at a fundamental level at their business. How's my business changing? How do my customers, what do they want now? How are they evolving? What, what are their needs? What can they afford? Um, you know, uh, how, how do I, how, how do I uh, you know, construct my supply chain, you know, in, in this world, you know, that, that, we're, that, that is going to be the world of the future. So I think uh, uh, this, is a, this is a really interesting moment for strategy. And, uh, and we're seeing the companies that are going to do really, really well are the ones that can, you know, that can flip, that can understand that this, this is not just a, uh, you know, short-term crisis. It, it's 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 a sign that industry competition is changing, and now they have to adjust it. One of the fascinating articles is uh, examples is Best Buy. I don't know if you know Best Buy, but you know they're a company that um, 
you know, they sold, uh, you know, electronic goods in, 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 in stores and they figured out that people could buy the same electronics, you know, on Amazon. So they turned themselves into a service company <laughs> and they were the ones that could actually help you fix your TV, you know, or make sure it was installed properly, you know. Great approach they took. We're seeing, it's, it's an amazing example. And um, how, if, if you're seeing how the, the world is changing and if you understand competition, how you can actually pivot to a whole different competitive positioning. So, I mean, I don't know your, your company that well, but uh, it'd be fascinating to think about what, what does this mean? How can we take advantage of this, you know, to, to be even better? Uh, in, in, in the next, next stage of the economy. You know, capitalism is, is going to find a way, uh, but uh, it's going it's to test a lot of industries that are so used to the way things are done that they'll have a hard time seeing, oh, no, we don't want to deliver this way anymore. You know, we, we, we're going to do it this way. And uh, what's, what's stressful now is you're having, to, you're having to take fairly radical changes in how you do business uh, because of the circumstances. Some of them are short-term, some of them are going to be long-term. You, so think, you, you think commercial real estate is over with? Like, you think commercial real estate is going to take a massive hit because of uh, Zoom growing from what it was to now $48 billion company? A lot of companies were forced to adjust to Zoom? Yeah, I think, I think it's going to take, I think it's going to go, it's going to take a somewhat of a decline. But at least my perception, and I talked to a lot of companies about this, is it's actually not that efficient for everybody to work at home and just be on the grid. It's frustrating. And, and uh, I think, first of all, it's not a human thing. People, people want to be with other humans and they want to talk and they want to solve problems together and they want to do it collegially. Uh, so I think, but I do believe that there's a lot of trips and meetings that we don't need to have. And there's a lot of things that we can do sort of more surgically using this technology. But I, so I, I would, if I was in real estate, I'd be rethinking my strategy. I wouldn't think I'm going away. I, I would be rethinking how to be a real estate company, what kind of real estate, uh, you know, configurations, what kind of services I, I want to offer. I wouldn't be thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm done. So if, is there, if you were a startup entrepreneur right now, is there an industry that you would say this looks very sexy? And is there something you would say, I wouldn't touch that at all right now? Well, um, you know, that's, that's you, Michael Porter. Everybody wants to know. Yeah, that, that's, that's a, a very, a very hard question. Um, I would say that uh, the whole luxury goods space is, is going to have a cloud over it for some time and we'll see what happens. But I think the idea of, of being conspicuous and spending huge amounts on these things, I, th I think that we're in a different era now. I think people are going to be much more uh, cautious and they're going to be much more, uh, you know, thoughtful and how they spend their money and what they spend it on and things like that. So I, I would say the luxury goods space has been a real hot space. You know, you could, those are great companies. They have massive valuations. But I think, I think that's going to change. Um, but I think, you know, it's funny, stuff related to the home, uh, cooking, uh, gardening, uh, uh, stuff like that, I think is, is thriving. Interesting. You know, the Sherwin Williams company is, is one of the great, the great paint company, you know, it's the paint is booming. People are painting their rooms. They're painting their houses. They're fixing things up. And, and that's because they've been at home and they've, they've come to really treasure their home. And, uh, that's a different mindset, you know? Um, and so I, I think it, it, there's, 
it's, this is a fascinating time because this is heaven for me. You know, industry by industry, it's a whole different game. It's changing. What do we do? How do we adjust to this? What's long-term? What's short-term? What's temporary? What's permanent? And every CEO and every leader is going to have to think this through. And, and it varies dramatically across industries. And there's still a lot of uncertainty. You know, we still, we still don't know quite when this, you know, COVID thing is going to get under control. So uh, anyway. Are you optimistic? I'm optimistic. I, I really am. I, I don't think that, I think in this era uh, of technology that is available, uh, we, we will find medical science solutions to this problem and it's not going to require people wearing a mask for the rest of their life. Um, I, I think we're going to be able to not do that uh, eventually. But, uh, and, but our, this is an example where our government failed us because we, the, the response to this crisis has been so inept and so political and so, uh, you know, partisan. And, um, uh, and uh, I, think, I think we've, we've set ourselves back in, in, in how this has been dealt with. And that's, you know, I, I'm particularly concerned about the federal level where we just weren't organized and we didn't get testing online and we didn't really manage this well. And I think that's partly because of the political system we're in and the fact that too many people in government roles today are party loyalists and, that, you know, that, that, were, that got a job because they were a trusted party loyalist. So, so I, think, I think the political system is partly explaining some of the challenges we've had here, but I think we'll get through it. And I think we've got a lot of medical science. There's just a lot of energy going on now in, in, in medical science. And I think we're going to see some really terrific progress over the next, you know, six months or a year. Uh, so hopefully it'll be sooner. I love it. All good. Well, uh, Catherine, I'll give you uh, final thoughts here before we wrap up. The audience has listened to you. They've listened to Michael, what are your final thoughts? What should we be thinking about to finish this interview? Yeah, thanks, Pat. First, I'm thinking I love long-form interview. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> Thank you for spending all this time with us. How are we yeah. going to tell this story in five minutes on another media platform? We're going to say free market politics. Uh, <laughs> this, but what I, what I want to leave the, the viewers with and is, you know, this is our book tour. So you could say we're trying to sell books. But actually, we only care about selling books because we want people to buy in to the change that we need, and then we want them to take action. So I definitely invite people to buy the book, and I invite people to get in touch with us and to think about being the leaders in their state to make these changes happen. You know, I'll close with this quote. I'm, I'm a Wisconsin girl. And uh, one of the leaders in the press of era was from Wisconsin, Bob LaFollette. And he said, America is not made, but is in the making. And that there's an unending struggle to keep government representative. Men must be aggressive for what is right. If government is to be saved from those who are aggressive for what is wrong. And now is the time for the entrepreneurial spirit that has led to so much progress uh, globally to come back to our politics. And it is time for people who watch your program, who have that kind of spirit to say, we can also make a difference in our politics. So take 
some part of attention that has been given to business or policy and focus it like a laser on the system of our politics. And then I join Michael in this optimistic spirit of where we're going to go. So thank you for having us. We're just thrilled. Super fun. It's been a blast. Michael, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, you, Patrick. What a pleasure. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.